Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Indian Interest Podcast, where we discuss geopolitics mainly. I hope you're all doing very well. Uh, as always, before we begin, let's see who all is there on this live stream with us. I can see Lage uh, Raho online, Wise Man One Two Three Four, Shivagami Devi, Jitha Jong An, Akshay Tejo Meg, Shikhar Napster, Durga Pankaj Kumar Tyagi TDC, Shrikant Bola Darshan, Fatty Just Eight, Anish Maurya, Pratham. Aditya Kumar Shaw, Trupti Teja, uh, Wiseman1234, Joseph Stalin is here, Feminist Slayer, Surya, Ketan, Changu Mangu, Shivadeep, Surya, Samarth Acharya, Pranav, Ketan, uh, Monish, Changu Mangu, once again, Tejo Meg, Surya, I can see the same names all over again, Prakhar, Chaurasya, Mod E, Dipto, Illuminati Creek, Shagun Chopra, Lakshay Rajput, Sparsh Pawar, Bimla, Shyam, Abhigya, Nitul, Sam, Pranay, Brijesh, Khushi Rani, Anurag, The Prime Mover, Darshan, Shivank, Ravi Raj, Illuminati Creek, Harsh Zaveri, Vinod Patil, Vidhan, Jay Guman, Aditya, Manikanta, Parth Chaudhary, Yash Rao, Dhruv Kumar, Shivam, Vrishab, Samar, Simha Reddy, Arya, Shashank, Midraj, Midhaj, Melvin, Manmat, Sudhakar, Romeo, Sam, Shubhajit, Gurjit, Diksha, Harshwardhan, Maurya, Vrishab, Rahimanshi, Rudra, Daniel Nicholson, Samar, Manmat, Anant Dev, Tyagi, Prohit, Ketan, and lots and lots and lots of other people. Thank you so, so much, all of you, for being on this live stream tonight. I can see more people as well. Elon Musk. Chocolate, <laughs> Parth, Zaina, Bharat, Crick, Big Hero, Probal, Deepak Kumar, and lots of other people. So yeah, uh, now that I've greeted you, greeted some of you, it's not possible to greet all of you, but yes, uh, I think uh, we will stop over there. So what shall we talk about? We have a lot of things to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, diplomacy that's going on. We're going to talk about the G20 thing, the G20 foreign ministers meeting that happened in New Delhi just very recently. We're going to talk about India and China, the relationship, how it is progressing and evolving. We're going to talk about China and Russia. What, How is their relationship going? We're going to talk about the Quad. We're going to talk about... Uh, uh, the visit of uh, Madame Giorgia Meloni to India and many other things. But let us begin with the event that's going on right now, the most important event that's been going on for the past one year, which is the Ukraine conflict. Let's talk about that and let's explore an angle that I haven't heard anyone talk about yet. So let's take a look at that. For that, obviously, we have to begin with the map so that we or can orient ourselves. Where is the map? Here's the map. So I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to go back in history. And uh, let's take a look at this place. This is the region that is the place where the conflict is happening, which is Ukraine, the Black Sea region, etc. This is the region. So if we look at the geography of Ukraine, we know that it's a very flat country. It's flat like a pancake. There are no rivers. I mean, there are, sorry, there are rivers. There are no valleys. There are no mountains, no hills. It's very flat. That's the kind of land it is. And this nation is dominated by a number of rivers. The major, most important river is obviously the Dnieper. The Dnieper River. And then there is a, another river called the Dniester. 
which also flows through Ukraine. If you go deep over here, this is the Dniester. So this is a nation of many rivers. Two of the major rivers are the Dniper and the Dniester. Now, uh, the Dniper used to be called the Danu Apara. The it is the it was a it was a Scythian shaka word Danu. Uh, the Scythian ancient Scythian word for water was Danu. It derives it is derived from the name of the Rigvedic goddess Danu. Uh, so so the river Dniester, uh, the river Dniper derives its name from Danu Apara, which means the lower Danu, and the Dniester was called the Danu Astara, which means the lowest, the southernmost Danu. So that's how the names Danu, uh, uh, Niper and Neister originated. And obviously, if you have heard me speak about this before, there are lots of river names in Europe which are all named after the ancient Rigvedic goddess Danu, the Don, the Danube, the Donets, the Dunayek, the Dugava, and many other rivers. Now, why are we talking about rivers? So let's go to the western part of Ukraine. There is this little nation here called Moldova. So the river Neister passes through Moldova. And uh, so here it is, the river Dniester. Uh, and this region, a long time ago, after the Scythian days, but during the Roman times, was called Dacia, D-A-C-I-A, Dacia. Now, <clears throat> this, so let's go back into history and let's talk, let's talk about uh, the 1990s. In the early 1990s, around 1990, 91, around that time, the Soviet Union began to disintegrate. Various uh, Soviet socialist republics, especially the Central Asian republics, etc., and even uh, Moldova and the Baltic republics like Estonia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they all declared, they started declaring their independence. This is in the 1990s. So Moldova... <coughs> Excuse me. Moldova also declared its independence. Uh, now, what happened is that the western region of Moldova, this region which is to the uh, the eastern region of Moldova, the region that is to the east of the river Dniester, this region is not entirely uh, the the ethnic groups that live in this region are not all Moldovans. It's about 30% Russians, 23% Ukrainians, and about 28% Moldovans. There are Bulgarians, there are Belarusians, and other people also. So this is not dominated by the Moldovan ethnic group. So what happened in around 1990, I think it was in September 1990, that this region said that they want to remain, either, either remain with, the, with USSR or Russia, or they want their own separate Soviet Socialist Republic. They called it the Prignestrovian Moldovan, Mol Moldavian Soviet Socialist Republic. And they wanted this republic to be separate from Moldova. This is something that happened in late 1990. Now, the great Gandhi of the USSR, Mr. Gorbachev, he opposed this. You know, if you look at the history, the late history of the USSR and the early history of the post-USSR Russia, you have two very central figures. One is Mr. Mr. Gorbachev and one is Mr. Yeltsin. So Gorbachev was the Gandhi of the region and Yeltsin was the Nehru of the region because he presided over the complete destruction of the, of the Russian economy. So when these guys in this region declared 
an independent Pridnestrovian Moldavian Soviet Socialist Republic, separate from Moldavia. Gorbachev opposed this, but he was no longer in a position of great power. So he uh, his opposition was verbal and moral and all that. And then there was a war. It is called the Transnistria War of around 1990 to 92. So this, so when Mold Moldavia. When Moldova declared independence, they did not really have an armed force of their own. They did not have an army. They had to, they had to set, it, set around creating their own army from scratch. Whereas the USSR did have an army and uh, the sentiments, I mean, the, the army of the USSR, whatever was left of it over here, was in favor of the independence movement of the Pridnestrovian Moldavian Soviet Socialist Republic. So they kind of supported the separatists who were trying to separate from Moldavia, Moldova. And then there was this war that happened for a couple of years. And then there was a ceasefire. And this region on the left bank of the river Dniester is now a post-Soviet frozen conflict zone. It is not administered by the nation of Moldova. That's what happened and that's the situation that still exists today so uh there is a peacekeeping force in this region so first of all if you want to uh, you may ask me what do you what do i mean by the left bank of a river so let's do a thought experiment think of your favorite river whichever it is it's an indian river foreign river whatever it is it is and do a thought experiment imagine you are magically transported on to the middle of the river and you are floating over the middle of the river and you are facing the downstream part of the river which means to the to your back is where the water originates from and in uh, to, your face is facing towards the the direction in which the water is flowing so if you are in this position then your left hand points towards the left bank of the river by convention and your right hand points towards the right bank of the river so that's what we mean by the left bank and right bank of a river so in in the case of the Dniester, the river the water flows from north to south it drains into the black sea so the left bank of the Dniester is this region called transnistria let's let's uh, put that on yeah here it is so this region is called the transnistria region you can see the the shaded region which is, well, not administered by Moldova. That is Transnistria. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's what it is. And this is the course of the river Dniester, which passes through Moldova as well as Ukraine. So this region is a post-Soviet frozen conflict zone. It is not recognized by any major nation, but it is recognized by the nations, well, the, the other breakaway nations such as Abkhazia, South Ossetia and Artasakh or Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, if you want to know where these are. Uh, so Ab Abkhazia is uh, this region here. If This is the nation of Georgia. And you can see there's a dashed line over here. So that is the breakaway Republic of Abkhazia in northwestern Georgia. There is a South Ossetia also, which is this, this dashed region over here, which is more or less administered by Russia. Both of these are proxies of Russia, you could say. And also Nagorno-Karabakh or Artasakh, which is uh, administered by Azerbaijan and historically been part of Armenia. So these three uh, nations or or unrecognized nations recognize Transnistria as an independent nation. 
so after the uh, war got over in 1992 the russians sent a peacekeeping force of soldiers to uh, to keep the peace in this region and russia has continued to provide military and political and economic support to transnistria there are approximately 2000 russian troops stationed in transnistria they are well they are designated as peacekeepers now why are we talking about this why are we talking about transnistria this this small obscure long forgotten region well let's take a look let's zoom deeper into the map uh, so the uh, the capital of transnistria is this city here tiraspol tiraspol now let's zoom deeper into the map and we find this little village in transnistria it's on the border with ukraine it's called kobasna what is kobasna so let's put the satellite image on instead of the map let's zoom in zoom in zoom in let's zoom into this little village called kobasna what do we have here what do we have we we have a church what looks like a church and we have a school and kindergarten but that's not remarkable what's what's interesting is this thing here so this thing here let's zoom in you can see these low flat buildings very well spaced this is a military ammunition depot it's called the kobasna ammunition depot it is the largest ammunition depot in eastern europe or maybe one of the largest ammunition depots in the entirety of of europe it contains roughly 20000 tons of ammunition uh so it's written over here explosive inheritance this is all soviet uh, soviet era ammunition so the uh, breakaway so this is an article about that now what's interesting is the quantity about 20000 tons it says that a study by the moldovan academy of sciences has warned that the impact of an explosion explosion of the depot would be equivalent to the atomic bombs from hiroshima and nagasaki now that they are saying that the expiration dates of the weapons have come and gone and all that but understand something just because some ammunition's expiry date is gone doesn't mean that it's not useful the you know there were battles during the during the first world war in europe in in certain parts of europe in certain parts of france and a lot of ammunition was expended over there there are lots of unexploded shells that are that litter the place even today those are no go zones for civilians because those shells that ammunition can still explode the americans bombed millions hundreds of thousands of tons of ammunition into cambodia laos vietnam during the vietnam conflict in the 1960s 70s yes and even today and and they laid i don't know how many maybe maybe thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of mines all over the place even today people get maimed and killed because of those those mines that are still hidden there and they explode randomly because no one knows where they are so if ammunition's expiry date is gone it doesn't mean it's not useful okay maybe it wa- maybe it won't work at 100% efficacy or say 95% efficacy maybe only 85% of the ammunition will work maybe only 80% will work maybe only 75% it doesn't matter it's still 3/4 of the shells that will explode so we have an enormous depot of ammunition in kobasna 
which is guarded by Russian soldiers. At least 1,500 soldiers are guarding this ammunition depot in Transnistria. It uh, it contains enough ammunition to be, you know, if it explodes, it's the equivalent of the uh, atomic bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that's an interesting uh, situation there. So there is this, this operational group of the Russian forces that is currently... Uh, acting as a peacekeeping force there but it's actually guarding it's uh, it's guarding the ammunition depot uh, now transnistria is, is uh, it has been pro russian for the longest time the first president was this fine gentleman whose name is igor smirnov uh, and it is said that uh, let's take a look at this tweet the former military inf- inspectorate of the ministry of defense of moldova has said that the armed forces of transnistria have rigged all arms de- depots between uh, within the breakaway region including the kobasna ammunition depot with explosives so if any military operations begin it will cause catastrophic damage to parts of moldova transnistria and ukraine so this ammunition all of it, this 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 depot has been rigged with explosives. If anyone tries to take it, it will be blown up. And it, the explosion will be equivalent to the atomic bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, NATO is in no position to take this. If they try to take it, it will be blown up. Uh, and as we know, uh, Transnistria is very much pro-Russian. This is a lady who was the a foreign minister of Transnistria about a decade or so ago. She is also married to the second president of Transnistria. So it's very clear that they have always been with Russia. Uh, so yeah, this is another uh, news report says, which says that it will resemble Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's the amount of ammunition that uh, this depot contains. And uh, this is something that happened recently. I mean, this happened in April last year, almost a year ago. Uh, drones seen and shots fired near near the huge ammunition depot. So apparently, it looks like Ukrainian dro- drones were trying to reco- do reconnaissance uh, operations uh, in this uh, region, the Kobasna ammunition depot. So there is a lot of interest, but it's not being publicized. So NATO is wondering how it can get its hands on this ammunition depot, how it can, uh, you know, eliminate the Russian presence from Transnistria and bring Transnistria back into the Moldovan fold and how to get their hands on this enormous ammunition depot. But uh, clearly, it is very clear that the ammunition depot is rigged with explosives and no NATO forces will be allowed anywhere near it without blowing the thing up. So that is the thing. Now, let's take a look at the geography, the border. It's right next to the border. It's less than a kilometer from the border with Ukraine. Yeah. And this is the overall geography. Now, as we know, during the Ukraine conflict, which is still ongoing, and it's uh, right now, it's kind of, uh, it's not very hot. Obviously, the Bakhmut operation is going on. The Ukrainian forces are encircled there. They have been given a line of retreat. So they are, they will be permitted to retreat for now. So Russia has taken over about a quarter of the nation of Ukraine. The Luhansk, Donetsk regions, the, the, uh, the eastern and southern parts of Ukraine. Now, everyone is saying a spring offensive is coming. I was saying a winter offensive would, would come. Lots of people are saying that also. But thus far, the Russians have been very calm. They have not taken any initiative to start an offensive. But it could come. A spring offensive could come. So, considering the Russian presence in Transnistria. You know, the Russian presence in Transnistria is... Imagine as if, if India were to have... A, an armed presence in Balochistan, 
or in Khyber Pakhtunwa, Pashtunistan, and that region would not be in Pakistan's hands. It, it would not be recognized as part of Pakistan by the uh, people who administer. That's the kind of that's the kind of achievement Russia. That's the kind of situation the Russians have achieved. So that's what happens when you have significant amounts of economic, military, and geopolitical power. When your geopolitical zone of influence is very large. So I would imagine that once, whenever in the future the Russian offensive begins again, I would imagine that the Russians would want to take all the coastal regions of Ukraine. This is all speculation. They've already taken Crimea, as we know. They've taken the Donbass region, a significant part of the Donbass region. Now, Odessa is a port that the USSR developed. There have been, uh, you know, they will definitely want to take, retake the port of the city of Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Odessa. So eventually, I would imagine they would like to take the entire coastal part of Ukraine and establish contact once again with Transnistria, at which time they could choose to reincorporate Trans Transnistria into Russia. So that is what could possibly be the long-term game plan of Russia. Not next week, not next month, maybe not next this year. It looks like this is going to be a slow-burning conflict, the Ukraine conflict. That's what it looks like right now. Obviously, we could be wrong. We don't know what Mr. Putin and his military planners are, are thinking. But eventually, I would imagine, considering the pro-Russian sentiment, very strong pro-Russian sentiment in Transnistria, and the presence of Russian uh, troops who are acting as peacekeepers, and the presence of the enormous ammunition depot in the, in the, in the Kobasna village, I would imagine that the long-term game plan eventually would be to re-establish Russian contact geographically with Transnistria. And they have a trump card in their hands. Nobody is in a position to take the city of Ko the, the town of Kobasna, the village of Kobasna, and take the ammunition depot because it is rigged with explosives. So if the if worst comes to worst, they will blow up the 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 ammunition depot, which would be a complete catastrophe for everybody involved, especially for civilians. So they will use it only as something uh, of, of last resort. They will not do it otherwise. But they have a nuclear option that very few people know about, the Russians. They have, they can set off the equivalent of a nuclear explosion without resorting to nuclear weapons. That's what Russia has there in Transnistria. So I would imagine that whenever the offensive comes, if it does come, eventually the long-term game plan would be for Russia to reintegrate Transnistria and to take the Ukraine's Black Sea coastal regions. Obviously, they may also want to take Kiev and do a regime change and all that. But this is something that uh, is very interesting. So they have created this uh, breakaway nation over here in Moldova. They also have the breakaway nation of uh, of South Ossetia and obviously Abkhazia in northern Georgia. So these are all unfinished uh, agendas of the post-Soviet breakup era. And I think that the long-term game plan of Russia is to reintegrate these regions with Russia. Now, when they will do it is, is something we don't know. But eventually, I, I would imagine that's what the game plan is. So I thought I would talk about this because it's very interesting and this could play out maybe this year or maybe in the coming during the during the course of the Ukraine conflict, however however long 
it lasts so that's uh, the situation right now the ukraine conflict is right now on a slow burn there is no big major offensive that's happening right now there are no signs visible signs of the russians preparing for an offensive obviously they have had a very long time to put the pieces in place during the long winter which is now ending springtime is here the new rasputin the springtime rasputin season is here so maybe there could be an offensive uh, even elon musk is saying that a, a spring offensive is coming uh, so yeah that's the situation right now there is a lot of action in bakhmut uh they are calling it the bakhmut meat grinder which is a horrific term but that's how it is going the russians have taken solidar and they are in, they have essentially encircled the ukrainian forces in bakhmut they have left a way open one road open for the ukrainians to retreat if the ukrainian government of mr zelensky does allow the ukrainian soldiers to retreat otherwise it's going to be well we know it's not going to be fun so a tremendous amount of fighting is happening in bakhmut and uh, it's it's causing a horrific amount of casualties on both sides but mainly on the ukrainian side and that is the situation the status of the conflict right now so that's about ukraine now let us talk about uh, something else we had the g20 foreign ministers meeting in new delhi let's put that on the screen where are we G20 so this is a very challenging time to be the president of the G20 uh because there is this war going on and there is no consensus among the G20 nations especially china and russia are not willing to agree to whatever the west is saying so let's put this on the screen grand test for indian diplomacy as american chinese and russian ministers meet in delhi so india is the president of the G20 this year and it's come at the toughest time because there's a war going on and there is a reorientation of the global geopolitical landscape that's happening russia is essentially more or less isolated by the west uh, the chinese are cooperating and collaborating with the russians india obviously is has not isolated russia india and russia are still on very good terms and india is buying lots of oil but apart from that russia is isolated from the west <clears throat> so <coughs> excuse me so grand test for indian diplomacy uh and then that's what happened this is a report from one day ago bitter divisions over ukraine over the ukraine war they mar the talks at the g20 foreign ministers meeting so this was a two day g20 foreign ministers meeting that concluded very recently like yesterday i think in new delhi uh representatives of i think approximately 40 nations were invited and representatives of various other international organizations were also invited and obviously you had the big big nations china russia india and the us foreign ministers of these nations so all of these people attended the event this is this was the largest g20 foreign ministers meeting in history that's what happened in new delhi and uh there obviously there was no consensus because the the western nations the us germany and whoever else the uk they wanted to use certain certain uh, paragraphs certain language in the in the document which comes at the end of the meeting which india and russia um, which russia and china did not agree to so there the meeting failed to achieve a consensus so uh, you could say that it was a failure but that's not uh, 
it's not an indian failure it's a g20 failure because the 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 foreign ministers failed to come to an to a consensus and agree to a to a common statement so uh, because of that india released a chair's summary and outcome document which was not a unanimously accepted document uh, and you can see this it says over here all g20 foreign ministers agreed to paragraphs 1 2 and paragraphs 5 to 24 which tells us that paragraphs 3 and 4 were the contentious paragraphs that not everybody agreed to and paragraph 3 is about the war in ukraine and it's about blaming russia and all those things and uh, paragraph 4 also is about that essential to uphold international law and multilateral system which means the us led rules based system Uh, and all those things so russia and china did not agree to paragraphs 3 and 4 but the other nations insisted on keeping this in the document so it has been clearly mentioned here that all foreign ministers agreed to paragraphs 1 2 and 5 to 24 but not 3 and 4 so this is the document that india as a, as the president of the g20 released at the end of the day and uh, mr modi himself addressed the opening segment of the g20 foreign ministers meeting and it was a rare occasion on which mr modi actually delivered his address in english which indicates how seriously he uh, how serious he was about this thing and he wanted everyone to understand exactly what he is saying so uh, it was inaugurated by with, with this uh, speech this address by prime minister modi and then we had this outcome meeting and one of the most important things that came out of this meeting is the first contact between the us and russia since the ukraine war began So the first contact happened between Mr Blinken the US Secretary of State and Mr Lavrov the Russian foreign minister they spoke briefly on the like they say on the sidelines of the G20 foreign ministers meeting so this is the first diplomatic uh, top level diplomatic contact between the two nations for the past uh, for, for for more than one year so this is something excuse <coughs> me which happened in new delhi uh so that's what these news reports are you can see the two gentlemen together very close to each other and they met briefly i the russians are claiming that the 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 contact was initiated by the americans and the two foreign ministers did not have a structured sit down meeting they simply spoke informally for about 10 minutes or so uh and uh, this is a report in which mr blinken is saying that he told russian foreign minister sergey lavrov to end this war of aggression and russia must in, engage in meaningful diplomacy that can produce a just and durable peace the same talking points that we have been hearing for the longest time so essentially the americans gave three major messages to the russians firstly it was about the new start treaty that the russians have withdrawn i mean they have suspended mr putin recently announced that he is suspending suspending russia's participation in the new start treaty so i've spoken about this in the past i will not go into the details right now so the first message from america to russia was that russia needs to rejoin the new start treaty that's the first demand or message that was conveyed the second one was that russia should reactivate grain shipments from ukraine so the americans are essentially blaming russia for the fact that grain is not coming out of ukraine while well, the russians are saying that it is the ukrainians who are not allowing the grain to come out so whatever the the what what the truth is we don't quite know unless you go and you have you know a presence on the ground and see what's really happening 
So the Americans, secondly, they said Russia needs to reactivate grain shipments from Ukraine. And thirdly, the message from the US to Russia was that the US will support Ukraine as long as it takes. In other words, the Americans will continue this proxy war to the last Ukrainian, as long as the last Ukrainian soldier is alive. Essentially, that's what it means. What the Russians conveyed to the US, we're not quite sure because the Russians have not given out any statement. So that's the uh, one of the major things that happened uh, in the G20 foreign ministers meeting. And of course, Mr. Uh, Jayashankar, Dr. Jayashankar has been tweeting about oh, the proceedings. He had a wide-ranging discussion with Foreign Minister Lavrov on the G20 uh, foreign ministers meeting sidelines. So this was a proper structured meeting. It was not a standing meeting which happened for 10 minutes. It was a proper meeting. And obviously, we can see uh, the meeting with uh, Secretary of State Blinken as well. You can see both of them are, they seem pretty, pretty happy with uh, the with how things have gone. So it was an opportunity to to review bilateral ties and discuss discuss global issues. And yeah, that's what it was. Uh, now the EU's Mr. Borrell, who has been in the news of late for a few. On, on on occasion, he has said that the G20 is no longer an economic forum, which means we will now engage in all kinds of geopolitical activities as part of the G20 proceedings. See, historically, if you look at the history of the G20, it, it has been uh, the purpose or the objective, not the stated one, but the actual objective has been to, uh, to facilitate trade and finance and economic activities. That's been the main purpose of the G20. Ever since the G20 was instituted. So the first G20 summit happened in 1999. And the G20 was formed in the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis, which was precipitated by Mr. George Soros. It was in 97 or some, somewhere around that time. So the G20 has been a, a forum of economic and financial cooperation. That's mainly what it is. But now the West is using the G20 as a tool to further their geopolitical messaging their geopolitical objectives. So that's what the G20 is now being redefined as. So Mr. Borrell of the EU is now explicitly stating that. He is saying the G20 is no longer an economic forum. So the G20 is dominated by the West. Uh, India and China are, and, and some other uh, nations of the so-called Global South are the only nations that are not Western, Western nations in the G20. So it's dominated by the powerful rich Western nations that form the G7 bloc essentially. And they are still trying to drive the agenda of the G20. And now they are trying to redefine the G20 as something that, as a group that will be used for geopolitical and uh, other kind of messaging as well. Uh, and day after the meeting, Blinken and Lavrov exchanged diplomatic snipe, swipes. So, so they are now sniping at each other. And uh, yeah, well, that's not a very big uh, surprise. Uh, the other interesting thing that came out is this, a very warm welcome for Germany's foreign minister in India. So typically when a high-ranking diplomat comes on a visit, goes on a visit to a, to another nation, they are they are treated as per a certain protocol. And especially if the, the relations between the two nations are good, then they are given a very warm welcome, red carpet treatment, lots of high-ranking officials there to welcome you when you come, when you touch down. So this is the welcome that the German foreign minister got in India. She gets down. There is no red carpet. She's given the, the, <laughs> there's no one to meet her. There's, there's a, there's a very, I mean, I don't know who this gentleman is. He obviously is a girl, well, represent the government, but that's not the kind of welcome she would 
<laughs> otherwise get and then one of her own officials comes and greets her so yeah that's the kind of welcome the german foreign minister got in india now germany has been very you know recently the german uh, chancellor came to india and the german ambassador to in india before the visit of the chancellor had said that germany would discuss india's internal affairs with india india's so called human rights situation and democracy and all that so see understand germany is a tool in the hands of nato which is the us germany is not a sovereign nation it is under foreign military occupation us military occupation since the end of the second world war the german constitution has been written by the americans by proxy so germany is not a sovereign nation it is an german foreign policy is an extension of the us foreign policy and they have been uh, you know acting up in this matter so they have been so india has given a very significant message to to germany by giving this welcome this this so called welcome to the german foreign minister and uh, yeah somebody is saying we should have put, put a banana peel on the stairs <laughs> uh, the people are her driver and planes refueling guy they really rolled out the asphalt carpet for her so yeah so people have noticed and uh, some people are really upset uh, even india no longer respects the leaders of the free world or oh, germany is the free world apparently german foreign minister arrives in india with no officials receiving her india wouldn't last 12 days without german support now this is extraordinarily delusional thinking but yeah that's what they believe so the west is now still trying to hold on to its vestiges of of greatness and glory and uh, it's it's so called uh, self appointed designation as the leader of the free world and yeah the us is apparently the leader of the free world but germany as a vassal is one of the leaders of the free world so yes that, that's the kind of messaging that was given by india to germany uh so yeah you know <coughs> excuse me in diplomacy there's a whole range a whole spectrum of messaging that you can use to convey your point across and this is one of the ways you do it so the lady was not mistreated in any way whatsoever she was given a welcome she i'm i'm sure the accommodation everything must have been excellent for her like all other foreign ministers the only thing missing was a red carpet treatment and a, a group of indian officials there to receive her that was missing so that's a very subtle but not so subtle message to germany mind your own goddamn business you are no one to lecture us uh so yeah that's what happened as part of the foreign ministers meeting of the g20 nations the largest g20 foreign ministers meeting in history but it didn't it did it if it failed to arrive to a consensus because the west insisted on using certain language in the final document that's uh, that china and russia did not agree to so india at the end of the day put out a document by the chair which summarized everything that was discussed and also included the paragraphs that all nations did not agree to and it was made very explicit that all nations don't agree to this so that is the g20 foreign ministers meeting so right now there's a competition going on there's a global realignment that's happening the west is still trying to hang on to its self appointed role as the leader of the free world but that is no longer you know going down well with everybody and there's a lot of pushback so there's a lot of maneuvering and jousting that's happening for geopolitical advantage and the backdrop of all of that is the ukraine conflict which seems to be the defining geopolitical conflict of our times of the 21st century thus far 
uh, yeah, so that's about the G20 foreign ministers meeting. Now let's talk about India and China. Let's go back to uh, the screen. Right, let's put this on the screen. So the Chinese foreign minister was in India, Mr. Qin Gang. And on the sidelines, here we are. So the Chinese foreign minister, Mr. Qin Gang, was in India as part of the G20 foreign minister's summit. And on the sidelines of the summit, he met with India's foreign minister, Dr. Jay Shankar. So this, what we are seeing here, is an automatic translation from Chinese to English. That's why the pronunciations and the spellings are not entirely correct. Uh, so in his first meeting with uh, Dr. Jay Shankar, the, China, the new Chinese foreign minister calls for normalized border management. Since September last year, Chinese officials have been emphasizing that the border crisis is essentially over while calling for normalized border management. What happened? The Chinese are the ones who created the, the crisis in the first place. It was their actions that caused the crisis, the, the border standoff that has been ongoing for the past three years between India and China. There was the Galwan clash, which led to the deaths of soldiers on both sides, 20 Indians and 80 or 100 Chinese. Uh, so it is all, if, the, if a crisis has occurred, if a standoff has occurred, it's happened because of Chinese actions and provocations and belligerence and intransigence, not because of Indian actions. Now the Chinese are, are, are singing a different tune. They are calling for, see, see, thus far it is all diplomacy, it's all words. One hears that the situation is now less tense on the border. There, there are elements of a phased withdraw, withdrawal that may be happening or may not be happening. One hears such things. So it looks like the Chinese now want a more normalized situation, a less tense, less hostile situation on the border. They want things to go back to normal. The, all indications uh, are pointing in the direction. So the Chinese foreign minister say, he calls for normalized border management. Uh, Jai Shankar meets new Chinese minister, foreign minister, discusses border standoff. Uh, and Mr. Dr. Jashankar obviously tweeted about this. As you can see, uh, neither of them are all smiles. Mr. Dr. Jashankar especially is not is making it a, a point not to smile. So clearly, the situation is not friendly. Both these nations are still, well, you could consider them hostile to each other. But diplomacy is happening. The meeting is happening. It's being done in a very civilized, diplomatic manner. But the body language and the facial expressions tell you the story, that things are not normal. The Chinese want things to be normal, but things are not normal. And the ball is in the Chinese court. The onus is on China to make things right and take actions that demonstrate their, their intention to make things right, to make things right. It's not India that has to withdraw from the, the occupied regions. It's not the Indians that have crossed the line it's the Chinese that have done it. So if they want things to go back to normal, the onus is on them. So I am sure those things would have been would have been discussed. Uh, clearly, somebody has realized <laughs> he is not showing a very happy face. Yeah. Uh, and then this is the Chinese uh, statement from their foreign ministry about uh, the meeting. So it's all diplomatic platitudes, more or less. What actually was discussed, everything will not be revealed over here. But the Chinese have given out a statement. It is in Chinese, actually. It's a Chinese language statement, which we can translate to a certain extent in English. 
machine translation. It won't be entirely accurate, but that's the statement. Okay, it's going to take time, so that's fine. Now, what's interesting is that the Chinese are now calling for an end to hostilities and for normalized border management. Thus far, it's words, but maybe there could be some, some actual action on the ground. They may actually be taking steps to normalize the situation. We still don't know. We will wait for actual reports for the, of that to emerge, but that's kind of what we are hearing. That things are less tense on the border. That's mainly the sense we are getting. So what happened? Why is this new tune being sung by the Chinese? So if you have been following me and this, this podcast and my pronouncements for the past couple of years, I have said one thing very consistently. I have said this on this channel. I have said this on other channels with in my interactions with, with other people as well. That 2024 is a defining year for India. Also for the US, but we are talking about India. The general elections will, will be held in 24. A new government will come to power. Or maybe the same government will come to power in a new form. That's what I mean actually. Uh, so the Chinese, I said, do not want a strong Indian government to come to power in 2024. They would very much rather prefer a weak government to come to power. A coalition government that is, that is you know, easily malleable, a pliable government that will be much more pro-China, pro softer towards China than what the Modi government is. So I have been saying this for the past two years. The Chinese would want a weak Indian government to come to power in 24. But that was before everything went wrong for China. See, the first thing that went wrong to China in the last two, three years is the coronavirus pandemic, the Wuhan virus pandemic. That has derailed the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative thoroughly. Nobody trusts China anymore. Nobody wants to cooperate with China and work with China in the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, the, the Maritime Silk Route, all those things. So China's great vehicle that would propel them to superpower status is gone. It is dead in the water. Secondly, the Chinese have not been able to make Russia their vassal state because India released the pressure valve, which was all the pressure that was building on Russia by starting to import enormous quantities of Russian crude oil. So the Russians found this pressure release outlet. And because of that, they were not entirely isolated. The Americans would have ex expected that India would isolate Russia and bow down to American dictates. That's not happened. Because of that, Russia has not been forced to go beg to China for, you know, for assistance. So the Chinese economy is now crawling. It is going negative. It is contracting. China is on the brink of a demographic disaster. The total fertility rate is, is below 1.2, which is a disaster. It's a catastrophe for any nation. <coughs> Excuse me. The Chinese economy is not doing well. It is no longer projected to surpass the US economy. If at, I mean, the, the earliest it could possibly happen is 2067, but most likely it will never happen. Because once the population, the demographic disaster really kicks in, the economy is going to contract even further. So China is staring down the barrel. It's no longer going to get rich before it gets poor. It's going to get it's, uh, rich before it gets old. It's going to get old before it gets rich. And it may never get really rich. So China is in dire straits. It is, it is going to go towards... A really bad time. By the end of the 21st century, China's population could be half of what it is today. And most of them could be elderly people. 
That's a disaster. Now imagine this scenario. Imagine this scenario for 2024. A weak Indian government comes to power. A coalition government led by God knows who. I, I think we can imagine who it could be. If it if it happens, the great dream of the West. That Mr. Modi loses the election and, and somebody else comes to power as part of a very weak Kichdi government, coalition government. Imagine that hypothetical scenario which will not happen, but imagine it. Such a weak, pliable, malleable coalition government is guaranteed to be very strongly pro-USA. It may be to some extent pro-China also, but it will be much more pro-USA. This is a scenario that did not exist until the Chinese, everything went for, wrong for China. They would also have preferred a weak coalition government. But today they would rather prefer, in the, in the new scenario where they are today, they would the Chinese would, would rather prefer a strong Indian government that stands up to the U.S., because we know that the U.S. wants to use India to counterbalance China and play their geopolitical, um, you know, games and further the, ge the geo U.S. geopolitical interest in the Indo-Pacific, including uh, using things like the Quad, the Quad grouping of nations, and other things. So, if there's a weak Indian government in power after 24, then they can, then the U.S. will be able to use India fully as an extension of U.S. foreign policy. But if Mr. Modi comes back to power in 24, that won't happen. So under in, in this new scenario, it is now clear that the Chinese actually would prefer Mr. Modi to stay, stay on in power. They don't want a weak government to come to power in India in 2024. Because Mr. Modi is not going to launch an invasion of China. As long as the Chinese behave, and if they demarcate the border, the issue will be over. That's what Mr. Modi wants. Yes, India may have to agree to, to recognize Tibet as part of China. And uh, we may agree to, to freezing the border wherever it is, the LSE as the international border. Some such agreement could, could be arrived at. If the Chinese are serious in their serious about demarcating the India-China border. So, uh, so the Chinese, I would say now, in this new scenario, would very much prefer Mr. Modi to come back to power because Mr. Modi is known to stand up to the U.S. Uh, to the U.S. and to the West, and Mr. Modi has made it amply clear he's not pro-China, anti-China. He even uh, went out of his way to woo Mr. Xi Jinping in the in the during his first term, and to convey to Mr. Xi Jinping that India was willing to cooperate with China. It was Chinese intransigence that led to the current border conflict. So the Chinese behave and they are willing to demarcate the border. The India-China issue will be over. And things may even be open, you know, possibilities may be open for India-China cooperation. Obviously, India cannot afford to let it guard down with China because the Chinese have this expansionist mindset. But yeah, things could go, think the relationship can be improved significantly. But that will only happen if there is an independent-minded government in India in 2024. So the scenario has changed now. I believe the Chinese now would very much prefer Mr. Modi to come back to power in 24. They would want Mr. Modi to win the 24 election. Because in the other case, if a weak government comes to power, it will be much more pro-US than pro-China. And that is going to be a disaster for China in the current scenario. 
so yeah that that's the that's the new deal with within the india china relationship that's how rapidly things are changing that's how rapidly the entire geopolitical scenario is changing in the in the second decade in the third decade of the 21st century interesting days are here all right let's talk about let's let's continue with china but let's talk about uh, china and uh, russia so as we know the chinese are supporting russia in the ukraine conflict the chinese uh, did not agree uh, with the wording that the uh, western foreign ministers had proposed during the g20 foreign ministers summit which is why the summit ended without the foreign ministers reaching to a conclusion so china is supporting russia china is uh, being overtly pro russia and yet it is playing a double game let me show you this that's why i say that even if india and china reach uh, you know demarcate the border india can still not trust china this is why so this is the news report that's come out recently <coughs> excuse me china challenges russia by restoring chinese names of cities on their border and this is the new map no this is not the map but yeah so uh, china's ministry of natural resources has issued new regulations on map content which require the addition of old chinese names to the current russian pronounced geographical names of eight places on the russia chinese border these place names include vladivostok khabarovsk one island and one mountain so they have renamed vladivostok to haishenwai they have renamed sakhalin island to kuyadao so that's what the chinese are doing so they are uh, indirectly claiming russian territory yeah so vladivostok is being called haishenwai which means sea cucumber bay and sakhalin island is is now being called kuyadao and so on and china has lost large expanses of land in its uh, northern region due to invasion by russians asia times explains so they are once again trying to pressure as russia no matter who they ally with they also play a double, double game and keep the pressure up on their own allies the chinese can never ever be trusted even if you enter into an official alliance with them they will still backstab you that's what the chinese are doing right now with russia with russia no less and that's a whole history behind it the russian far east the chinese once had claim to that a long 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 time ago like two centuries ago uh this is yeah this seems to be the actual map yeah they are renaming things that they are putting a chinese name on russian places this is a translation from chinese to english obviously there we are yes Uh, so now the, you know this is from 2022 the chinese have this social networking site called weibo it's the it's their version of twitter and the sentiment is that we got hong kong map back why not vladivostok that's what the sentiment is and it's it's a government approved sentiment and this is the same news china changes russia china border place names and obviously vladivostok is not on the russia china border and yet they have changed the name of vladivostok as well so it's not just names of places on the russia china border it's other places as well that belong to russia so that is the double game the chinese are playing they're trying to backstab russia or it or at the very least keep up the pressure or or add additional pressure on russia so that's uh, 
that's typical of china that's part of their old playbook now let's talk about the quad so we had the uh, g20 foreign ministers meeting in uh, new delhi we also had the quad foreign ministers meeting where is that let's put that on the screen so once again lots of uh, diplomatic action is happening right now the quad is the quadrilateral group of nations india the us and two american vassal states japan and australia so it's india it's in india india versus india and us combination that's what the quad is and it's about maintaining the balance of power and the status quo in the indo pacific region and obviously whether they agree to it or not it's aimed at containing china's so called peaceful rise they don't want china to run roughshod over asia and it makes sense for the powerful nations to come together uh to ensure it doesn't happen that's what the quad is about india the us japan and australia so there was a, a quad foreign ministers meeting which is something that happens on a regular basis began the day by meeting my quad counterparts counterparts senator wong penny wong of australia yoshimasa hayashi of japan and uh, mr blinken of the us reaffirmed that the quad is for not against yeah okay uh and for an inclusive resilient free and open indo pacific that's the diplomatic messaging that is being done uh dr jashankar also met uh, the lady penny wong of australia one on one productive discussion with her the regularity of our contacts uh, contacts reflects the convergence in our views look forward to an exciting 23 in india australia relationship excellent signaling over here and <coughs> excuse me delighted to host foreign minister yoshimasa hayashi of japan on his first visit to india continued our warm and friendly conversations discussed the solid progress in various elements of our bilateral relationship as also our cooperation in third countries uh right so that's done and there was a joint statement of the quad ministerial meeting in new delhi this has been this is a document that the americans have put out as you can see it's a very lengthy document shall i summarize what the document is about it's about reaffirming the quad's commitment to a free and open indo-pacific that is inclusive and resilient it's about supporting the principles of freedom and the rule of law and sovereignty territorial inte- integrity all those things and opposition opposing any unilater- unilateral attempts to change the status quo uh practical cooperation on contemporary challenges health security climate change all the all the usual suspects uh, supporting asean in the region asean is the association of southeast asian nations it's about uh, supporting uh, pacific island nations and uh, supporting their aspirations and their objectives uh, the blue pacific continent that sort of thing uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief in the region making progress on on that front and supporting the obviously the rules based international order anchored in international law uh reiterating the importance of adherence to international law and the united nations convention on the law of the sea to meet challenges to the to the rules based order and various such things and obviously condemnation of terrorism and extremism in all its forms and manifestations that is that i'm sure there is much more pathan court attack we are we are seeing here the 2611 attack in mumbai obviously this was added at uh, india's behest and all that 
So that's what the statement was all about. This standard diplomatic statement. What was really discussed, we will not know. Obviously, we should we should not. And there was a Chinese reaction to that. So China China slam squad meeting held in New Delhi opposes exclusivity, whatever it means. Uh, it has criticized the quad grouping, saying that the state-to-state interaction should pursue peace and development and contribute to mutual trust and so on. The Chinese are not happy with this. <clears throat> China believes state-to-state interactions <coughs> should be about peace and development rather than exclusivity. So, so the Chinese have criticized the quad grouping. So that is an interesting thing that happened. So the Quad is meeting regularly. There is progress on that front. And whatever people say, whatever the Quad says, it's uh, it's it's essentially something that is going to help India navigate its China challenge. That's what the Quad is about. That's what it is. What is in it for India? So that is something. That happened this week, and I thought I should discuss it because it is important. Now let's talk about. Uh, let us talk about Madame Giorgia Meloni. So Madame Giorgia Meloni recently, very recently, visited India. Let's put that on the screen. It was her first major visit to a foreign nation as head of state. She is the prime minister of, of Italy, obviously, and uh, she got a very warm welcome in india so let's talk about uh, madame meloni she is uh, she belongs to the fratelli d'italia party the brothers of italy and she came to power recently her her party came to power recently she has been she is the prime minister uh, and western commentators and journalists will say that this is the most so called right wing government in italy since the second world war so madame meloni is an italian nationalist <clears throat> she has been harshly critical of French neo-colonialism. She has been extremely critical of Monsieur Macron, Emmanuel Macron. She has she doesn't have a very good relationship with him. She criticizes immigration. She criticizes globalism. She criticizes what she calls what we call liberalism these days. Yes, uh, the slogan of her party is Dio Patria Famiglia, which means God, homeland, and family. A patria can be translated as fatherland or homeland or country. So she has come to power on a nationalistic uh, plank. That is her the ideology she espouses. Italian nationalism. She is not happy about the fact that Italy is a member of NATO and is under US control. Italy is still to some extent whether you like it or not, whether you realize or not, under US military occupation, it has been so since the end of the Second World War. And Italian foreign policy is very much an extension of US foreign policy because it's part of NATO. Yeah, That's how it works. <coughs> so she has very harshly criticized French uh, neo-colonial activities in Africa. As you can see, she does not get along with Monsieur Macron. She obviously will meet him when required, but she does not get along with Monsieur Macron. As you can see, as you can see, the body language speaks volumes over here. So she came to India, she uh, and contrast the, the 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 welcome she got with the welcome that the German foreign minister got. Uh, obviously, this is a much more high-ranking official. This is the Prime Minister of Italy. But she got a very warm and friendly welcome in India. She was made to feel very welcome. She was evidently extremely happy. What does she write here? Ringrazio il... One second. 
Ringrazio il primo ministro Narendra Modi per la splendida accoglienza in India. Uh, un viaggio che coincide con il 75 anniversario delle relazioni bilaterali tra le nostre nazioni, ci abbiamo elevato a partenario strategico. What she means is, let's translate, I thank the Prime Minister for the wonderful welcome in India, a journey that coincides with the, once, with the 75th anniversary of bilateral relations between our nations, which we have elevated to strategic partnership. So India and Italy are now strategic partners. The relationship has been elevated. Excellent, excellent. Um, and she met with India's president, uh, Madam uh, Draupadi Murmu, and she tweeted about that as well. Over here, uh, the obligatory homage to Mr. Gandhi, Mr. Gandhi, uh, and uh, Prime Minister Modi spoke about this, had fruitful talks with Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni, which were focused on boosting India-Italy cooperation in sectors such as commerce, renewable energy, IT, space, and upcoming sectors like semiconductors and green hydrogen. Deepening ties in startups and defense were also discussed as well. So the India-Italy relationship is now extremely strong and extremely warm. At least that's what we are seeing from this visit of Madame Meloni to India. In the past, it has not been so. So India and Italy are now turning a new chapter. The old relationship, whatever it was, <laughs> is a thing of the past. This is a vibrant proactive new relationship that we have with Italy. And it's, it, it augurs well for both nations, I would say. And uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, he live-streamed this, his remarks at the press meet with Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni of Italy. Uh, and obviously the two leaders got along very well. He also attended the Raisina Dialogues and heard the insightful address by Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni, where she was the, the chief guest or, or guest of honor And Giorgia Meloni also said that Prime Minister Modi is the most loved, one of the leaders of all leaders around the world. So overall, a very uh, successful, <clears throat> uh, eventful and successful visit of Prime Minister Meloni to India. So it's good to see the India-Italy uh, India relationship turning a new leaf, a new chapter and progressive in a constructive and positive direction. Excellent to see this. And a lot of that credit, credit would go to Prime Minister Meloni because Prime Minister Modi has always been a proactive Prime Minister who, is, who has tried his best to, uh, to expand India's outreach, diplomatic outreach, economic outreach and cooperation with other nations, including you must have wanted Italy as well. But now we have an Italian leader who is receptive to that and who wants that relationship to to be strengthened and to go forward. So excellent to see this state visit by the Prime Minister of Italy to India. It was, by all accounts, extremely successful. Good to see that. Now, the last thing we will talk about is the Raisina Dialogue. What is the Raisina Dialogue? Uh, let's put that on the screen. Uh, just a second. Oh, let me add that to the screen. <laughs> so the Raisina Dialogue is... India's premier conference on geopolitics and geoeconomics committed to addressing the most challenging issues facing the global community every year. All those things, lots of leaders in politics, business, media, civil society converge in New Delhi to discuss the state of the world and explore opportunities for cooperation on a wide range of contemporary matters. It's an annual summit that happens in India, in New Delhi. It is a run, it is organized by the Observer Research Foundation, which is a think tank in New Delhi, in 
partnership with the Ministry of External Affairs, Government of India. So you could say that it's an official uh, conference or meeting uh, that happens every year. And you could say it's organized by the Government of India. So the Government of India will have a very strong presence. The Prime Minister this year attended the or the the uh, dialogue so did various high-ranking Indian ministers and government officials and the chief guest was uh, Madame Giorgia Meloni, Prime Minister of Italy and Raisina, uh, the Raisina dialogue has now become probably maybe possibly the world's largest annual gathering uh, of geopolitical and economic and other thought leaders and actual leaders around the world so uh, and this is the list list of speakers. We can see Anthony Blinken is there, Tony Blair, former former Prime Minister of the UK, uh, Madam Nirmala Sitaraman, Minister of Finance, India, and lots of other people. Uh, the cricketer Kevin Peterson, former captain captain of England, was there. Uh, where is Mattis? So yeah, Mad Dog Mattis was there, the the US general, and. Uh, Lots and lots of people, some familiar. Velina Chakarova was there. She has appeared on, on this channel. So it was uh, it was held very recently. Now, it began on a strange note. So Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, was invited. But he decided to shun the dialogue over mention of the Iran protests. So let's take a look at this. Uh, he did not attend the Raisina Dialogue in India, criticizing a video posted by the conference organizers showing protests in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, a video on the ORF website criticized by Iran includes footage of Iranian women cutting their hair, a symbol of protest against the Islamic Republic's strict hijab rules. Since the, death, uh, since the unrest sparked by the death in custody of a young Iranian woman in September. So the ORF website placed uh, had a video on its on the website which included footage of Iranian women cutting their hair and uh, protesting against the Iranian government. So uh, the same news over here as well. So this move comes apparently because of differences between with India with Raisina organizer ORF over a promotional video and all that. So this. We have to understand it's not organized merely by the ORF. It's also organized jointly with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of India, the Foreign Ministry of India. So you could consider this to be a subtle or not so subtle message that is being sent to Iran by India officially. You know that in, that Iran, if it wants to uh, be to have a good relationship and partnership with India, it needs to do a little bit more. It's not doing enough. That's what is being possibly messaged to Iran that you have not yet reached, uh, you have not yet done enough for us to, you know, to give you the kind of treatment we would give to other nations. See, historically, Iran has been extremely intransigent and non-cooperative with India. It has been very happy for India to buy Iranian oil, but it has, uh, you know, not cooperated with India whenever India, uh, well, when, when it comes to the, a good example is the Farzad B oil um, gas field that India discovered, that India's ONGC, I believe, discovered in the Persian Gulf. And they did not allow India to to, to develop the oil field, the, the gas field. They, I think they, they offer it to other nations. So they have not been cooperating with India when it comes to gas. Uh, 
they supported Pakistan from time to time in the in the 20th century. In 1965, they gave actual material support to Pakistan in the war against India. Um, another thing that comes to my mind is India has been requesting Iran to send a few cheetahs to India. India has been send, doing requesting Iran since the 1970s to send cheetahs to India, to reintroduce the cheetah in India. The Iranians have not played ball. They have refused steadfastly. I don't know what they... What, what the gain out of it. So the message that is being sent to Iran is that you need to do a lot more for us, <laughs> you know, to consider you as a genuine uh, partner or ally or, or, or not ally, but partner would be the right word. You need to do a lot more. You're not doing enough. So that was a diplomatic snub that was given by India to Iran. See, India and Iran are now beginning to cooperate again because of and and it's because Iran is isolated and they need the help of other nations. So it's not because Iran suddenly has become friendly towards India, that Iran is cooperative with India. When it comes to the North-South Corridor and other things as well, it's because Iran has no other choice. So India is telling Iran that you need to do a lot more for the partnership to work. That's essentially, I think, what India is telling Iran. So the Iranian foreign minister did not come to the Raisina dialogues. Uh, and uh, Mr. Modi, obviously, as we can see, it's a, it's an official it's an official uh, event. The government of India is fully involved at the highest level. So Prime Minister Modi attended the Raisina dialogues. The lady, uh, Madame Meloni, was the guest of honor or the chief guest. Uh, and she gave the, uh, the inaugural address. Uh, Mr. Lavrov was part of the Raisina dialogues. Uh, Russia's foreign, foreign minister, Mr. Sergei Lavrov. So he strikes, he stru struck a defiant note on Ukraine. He was interviewed by uh, by an ORF official, by I think the director of the ORF. And the the questioning was kind of, I would be, I would say, a little bit strong. The questioning you could construe it to be kind of pro-West. The kind of questions that were asked by the Indian gentleman to Mr. Lavrov, and uh, it is reported that Mr. Lavrov was interrupted several times. And uh, this is an article in the Washington Post. Russia's Lavrov elicits cheers and groans at Indian political dialogue. So, uh, to loud applause, Lavrov emphasized what he called double standards in, in questions directed to him about the war, especially when contrasted with the United States' own military interventions in past decades. So, he got good uh, loud applause when he said, uh, said that. However, his assertion that Moscow was the victim, not the aggressor in the Ukraine conflict, elicited laughter and groans from the audience. So, if you see the video, you will you, you will hear laughter when he says this. I'm not. I, I I don't think the entire audience laughed at him. Maybe half the audience laughed at him. So, if you look at the the speakers, you will see a lot of people from the West. Obviously, you will see the global South strongly re represented over here, but one could argue that this is this this field of speakers one could argue is kind of dominated by the west to some extent at least you know it's kind of it kind of leans towards the west so uh, that's the kind of audience we had ah this is the gentleman who interviewed mr lavrov uh, orf director sanjoy joshi uh, so, so Mr. Lavrov was invited. There has been criticism of India for inviting Mr. Lavrov to the to the to the Raisina dialogues. Well, that criticism is 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 none of anybody's business. What India does is is entirely up to us. We are a sovereign nation, and we decide whom we invite or not. I think it's a very good thing that India did. 
inviting Mr. Lavrov and giving him the opportunity to put his points forward in front of a global audience. The world can only go forward if there is dialogue and cooperation, if, if we listen to both sides. So India is doing a very good job of doing this. It's the first time in over a year that the Russian and US foreign ministers have met. India made this happen. And India also gave the platform to Mr. Lavrov to put forth his perspective as part of this interaction. And obviously, lots of other speakers were there, many of whom, whom were from the West. Uh, so yeah, all those things were discussed. Uh, Dr. Jaishankar was very much part of this. Mr. Modi, Prime Minister Modi was part of it. Uh, former uh, world leaders were involved. Even a cricketer, Mr. Peterson, was involved. So that's what uh, happened just a couple of days ago. The One of the world's largest geopolitical summits happened with thought leaders and economical, financial leaders and world leaders, journalists, other people from all across the world. And it is significant for the fact that Mr. Lavrov was given the opportunity to speak and that's being... That is currently being remarked upon in the West and across the world. So these are the things I wanted to discuss in today's episode. Right now, the whatever is happening, it is in the background of the Ukraine conflict. The Ukraine conflict has thoroughly changed the geopolitical dynamics of the world. It has caused a clear polarization in the world. You have the so-called international community, which is just a small group of nations, the Western nations, that are strongly anti-Russia. They are trying to isolate Russia. They've imposed all kinds of sanctions on Russia. You have the actual international community, which is the nations that are not represented in the Western media, which is Africa, which is Asia, the so-called global south, which are mostly neutral in the conflict. They are saying that the two sides need to resolve the differences, hopefully without too much warfare, through dialogue and negotiations. So we are calling for hopefully a cessation of hostilities and dialogue and diplomacy rather than war. And that's been India's stance as well. And some nations are overtly supporting Russia, which essentially is China. And the West has accused India of indirectly supporting Russia, which, well, it is not true. India is indeed buying oil from Russia. It is for our own interest, not, not to help Russia. We need the oil. We are a growing nation, one of the major growing nations in the world. We need energy. We need oil. So we are simply looking out for our own national interest and for the needs of our own people. So there is this big realignment, geopolitical, global geopolitical realignment that's happening right now. The world is changing fast. The world is becoming polarized. We are possibly witnessing a bifurcation of the global world order, which may become more clear in the next few years, maybe by the end of the decade for sure. That's what's happening. And right now, the Ukraine conflict is kind of... There's not a whole lot happening. There's a lot of activity in Bakhmut, but not anywhere else. There are no major offensives that are being launched right now or ongoing right now. The map... The line of control is kind of stable when it comes to the Ukraine conflict. And in the meanwhile, we are witnessing all this diplomatic and geopolitical activity. India and China are engaging each other. The foreign ministers of the G20 nations came together and failed to reach a consensus, arrive at a consensus. The Quad is meeting. And everyone is using these various platforms 
to score geopolitical points and to gain some advantage over the rivals so that is what's happening right now right now the world is in a holding pattern you know when you're landing or taking off from an let's say when you're landing at an airport sometimes if there is a lot of congestion at the airport you are to, the pilot is told to hold uh, to to go into a holding pattern which means you circle around the airport for 15 20 minutes maybe half an hour if things are bad and then you can land so right now we are in a holding pattern everybody is circling looking at each other warily and trying to gain some advantage so that's how things are going to continue until if a new uh, offensive is launched in the ukraine war and then things will heat up again so right now that is the situation that we are in and that's where i will conclude today's indian episode of indian interest thank you very much for watching and i will see you very soon i will see you in less than 24 hours for the next episode of the ask abhijit show until then take care thank you very much for watching and i will see you very soon thank you bye good night good day see you soon